Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Fit podcast, where it's my job to help you apply knowledge that is both scientific and practical into your own life to maximize your physique development and your overall body, as well as your mind. The combination of these two things is what makes you Beyond Fit. Hi guys, welcome back to the Beyond Fit podcast. This is your host Jake Parker. I have Dr. Mike Nelson back on the show today. He was back, he was on the show. I don't remember exactly what month it was. It was probably about six months ago. It was episode one thirty or so. Uh, but we got to talk a lot about metabolic flexibility, fasting, micronutrients, kind of along more of the uh, nutrition side of what Mike is an expert in. And so today, I wanted to get a little bit more into other restorative parts of training. Obviously, me being a coach, I talk to people a lot about just pragmatic things they can put into their lives as far as fitness and training. But for my own life and for people that really want to maximize things, I like to talk about the restorative aspects too and how important those things are. Um, For example, something I've been trying to dig into recently is how to improve my sleep. And I know that that being such an important thing, I guess one of the first questions I had for you was, how important is it and how do you gauge with yourself or with clients when it's time to focus more on restoration and when it's time to focus on pushing and getting the most out of your training and really going hard? Because it seems like too often, especially the younger you are, the more you just want to say no pain, no gain, and you want to push through things. So how important is that restorative side and that recovery side for longevity and just for your overall health? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's super helpful. Um, it's a practical answer is you can you can think of uh, stimulus and recovery, and they're almost like stair-stepping each other, mm-hmm. right? So at some point, if you bring up your stimulus too high or just your overall stress, it may take you way too long to recover from it, right? So the old school classic, you know, dude, bro, brutalize your chest on Monday with 1,800 sets, and then you can't really train it again until the following Monday. Mm-hmm. Eh probably not the best approach, right? But maybe if you did some recovery type stuff or even changed your training, you could add a little bit more frequency. So now you can get looking at the course of a week, you can get a little bit more work in. So maybe you add a little bit more work again, but then your recovery has to be good enough to be able to, you know, withstand that again. So I think they're kind of uh, playing off of each other. And then in the real world, I use heart rate variability to try Mm -hmm. to determine what's going on with that, which is just a marker for stress. So if I have the training plan kind of laid out and the HRV is just like dropping, so they're becoming much more stressed. Now my options are, eh, I can pull back on their training or we can look at nutrition, recovery, a bunch of other stuff. We may be able to add something in depending upon the time that they have to do it. And then that may be better. So it also a lot of times depends on time, right? So a lot of times people look at my training programs and they're like, oh, well, you just told them to cut their volume by 50% if they're very stressed. I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. because I know they don't have another 40 minutes to do any other restorative type stuff or even to go to bed an hour early, Mm -hmm. right? So my option is limited just because they have a life and probably just going to pull back on training. However, if they're like, hey, you know, I can move stuff around, I have other things I can do, I would rather leave my training stress here, then you can get into what are other things you can do to try to maximize that 
And again, most of them are going to involve time, but if they have the time to do it, then great. You can push it up a little bit more. So as far as just things that you see being common problems, common things that need to be addressed, would you say that first and foremost, before you start looking into any specifics or any kind of hacks or something like that, just looking at being able to add more sleep, is that a big thing for people that they'll, they'll notice right off the bat? And how do you address things like that, that maybe it's not like an acute thing, like a new supplement where they're going to feel it right away, but over time, it's going to be so helpful physiologically. How do you address things like that? Yeah. So that's something that I've tried to figure out, I say over the last 15 years. So I'd say if you would have asked me this, maybe six or seven years ago, I would have said, Oh yes, by far, you know, sleep, there's tons of physiologic benefits to sleep, you know, elite athletes sleep nine to 10 hours a night, a lot of times with an hour nap. Sometimes again, they don't have a job. They don't have other commitments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of like the high end of the spectrum, like where you're looking at, and I would have said, Hey, just get people to sleep more, you know, have these in-depth conversations, show them all the research. And now I'm like, meh, like sleep. I usually put down towards the bottom of the list from a pure intervention standpoint. And the reason is I base it on uh, something I came up with just called coaching leverage, which is the physiologic response times the client's ability to change. Okay. Right. So if we look at something like protein, which we talked about last time, uh, protein, lots of benefits for body comp performance, satiety, lots of things, uh, lots of really good physiologic data, good research. We have a pretty good idea of what is better amounts. And most people, once you have a like show them, you know, what to do, how to do a few basic cooking skills, they can eat more protein. So ability to change is relatively high. So physiologic impact, maybe a nine ability to change, maybe a nine. So total score is 81. And this is how I lined out the, the flex diet certification. So protein ended up being intervention number one and physiologic reasons easier for clients to do. Uh, when I did all that sleep ended up being number eight. <laughs> it was like dead last because huge amount of physiologic impact. Again, probably a nine, maybe even a 10. Mm-hmm. Most clients ability to change was like a, a friggin' one. Yeah. Right. Because you've had these conversations with clients, I'm sure. At the end of the day, it almost becomes sort of a value judgment on their life, mm-hmm. right? Because you go through the whole schedule. Okay, what time do you get up? Okay, I got the kids or I got to go train people, the clients at the gym. And then I've only got a break in the afternoon. And then, and so it comes down to, you know, I have like an hour and a half, you know, to chill out with my spouse, you know, at night. And you're telling me not to do that and just go to bed. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, kind of, right? You're not going to change your job. You're not going to move your house. You're not going to move closer to work. And so it kind of comes down to this sort of weird value judgment and, you know, expecting clients to make radical changes to just improve their sleep. Yeah, probably unrealistic. Would they be better for it? Yes. Would their performance probably be better? Yes. Would a lot of their health be better? Yes. Um, But again, like you said, those are also very slow changes, right? So even getting someone to go to bed a half hour every night earlier probably going to see some benefit, but, and they may have such a huge sleep debt, they may not feel any difference. Mm-hmm. So in that case, again, I'll use like heart rate variability and look and see, Oh, wow. Your heart rate variability is doing a little bit better. You may not feel better because of other things going on. But we have an actual marker of stress that says your body is physiologically less stressed. Again, it doesn't always work that way, but 
if that happens, now they have an external metric they can look at and go, oh, okay, even though I don't feel better, it's kind of a pain in the ass to go to bed a half hour earlier. Uh, I can see that there is some, you know, physiologic benefit to doing it. Therefore, they're more likely to continue with the habit. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, why would, if the HRV was objectively better, what would be some reasons that people would say, oh, you know, I don't feel better. I don't feel any different. Yeah, the, the feeling and stress don't always line up, but sometimes they do. So I would say most times they do, but not always. So uh, some stressors, for whatever reason, are a little bit kind of unconscious that we don't have as well of sensation for it. Uh, part of it is an expectation. You know, they may be thinking if they get a half hour of sleep more per night, they're going to feel amazing and they don't really feel that much better. Um, so a running joke with sleep researchers is that if you talk to them, they're like, oh, yeah, we have all these people who tell us all the time, like, bro, I can sleep like five hours a night and I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And we bring them into the lab. We stick them in a dark room. We have them do a boring, repetitive task for like 10 minutes and like half of them fall asleep within a mm -hmm. few minutes. Right. Because it the more sleep deprived you get, you start losing awareness of how sleep deprived you are, mm. right? So you've got a loss of awareness going on. And then, as I mentioned, I think some stressors are more subconscious. So many years ago, I went and uh, we did like a, a business mentorship thing on the East Coast and checked into the Airbnb. I went to the thing for two days. I only went out with one friend one night, had one beer, went to bed super early, did everything I did, did my training when I was there. My HRV the whole time I was there was just, boom, just by the time I got there and left three days later, had a drop almost 20 points, which pretty massive. I'm like, my nutrition was good. There was like no huge changes other than travel. I had been traveling a lot at that point, so didn't normally drop that much. And I got home and like 24 hours after being home the next morning, boom, it like went all the way back up to normal. I'm like, that's so weird. And the only thing I could figure out is afterwards, when I was thinking back, the place I was at was a new Airbnb that was just listed and it smelled horrible. Oh, really? It smelled like super musty, damp. And my only thought, which again, I don't even know if this is true, was maybe there was some weird mold or something that I was being exposed to while mm -hmm. staying there that my body just didn't like. And I couldn't really feel that much different. I mean, I felt a little bit more tired, but nothing crazy. You know, so I think sometimes there are other things that can happen. Um, sometimes right before people will get sick, you'll see their HRV sometimes drop. Mm -hmm. And they're like, I don't know, I still feel okay. Um, but then if they continue on, oh, yeah, then like, you know, 24, 48 hours later, like, oh, yeah, I got sick. Oh, okay. So most of the time, I think they line up, but mm, not always. Mm -hmm. As far as being away from like your home or whatever, isn't there something to be said or you just don't sleep as well, you can't get into as much of a deep sleep when you're in a different environment. That's, Cause that's something I've heard before too. Sure. Um, I would say in general, that's pretty true. Um, up until we had the pandemic lockdown or whatever, I looked back and I'm like, huh, like how long was, it was the longest period of time I was home for over three years. It was three and a half weeks. <laughs> so I was pretty used to traveling and staying in different places i have an aura ring and mm -hmm. stuff like that so i would say that in general um travel not the best for recovery there's things you can do to try to mitigate it and to make it better um, i definitely did get better at it over time 
but I also noticed like just being home and having like a normal schedule, sleeping in the same bed, you know, having access to the same equipment and food is definitely makes things much easier for sure. Mm -hmm. So as far as when you talk about uh, your aura ring, is there any situation where you have a client that wouldn't be tracking HRV in some way? And is that your preferred method using usually just uh, a ring or what other methods are there? And do you feel like there is ever sort of an over fascination with the HRV where someone puts too much stock in it? Can that be a problem too? Oh yeah. I mean, if they look at the data and they freak out, then I may not want them to measure data. Mm -hmm. Right. And I've talked to my good buddy, Dr. Ben house about this too, is that the goal of the data is to actually make you more anti-fragile, not to become more fragile. Mm -hmm. Right. So what I don't want, and I don't actually allow clients to do this is, Oh my gosh, I looked at my aura data and it says I got only 10 minutes of deep sleep last night. Oh, today is going to suck. I don't know if I should train. I might get sick. It's like, yeah, you're probably going to be fine. Right. One, we don't know what the errors are in that measurement. Two, I'm more concerned about how much of a change that is from the previous day or previous week. Um, three, your body has an amazing capacity to buffer different stressors. Um, so if it's a short-term thing, you're probably going to be fine, right? Same thing with HRV. Um, so for more advanced clients or even some other clients, if their HRV shows up one day is red, like, so quote unquote bad, very sympathetic, but their average has been pretty good. I may have them go to the gym and, you know, test a one or three or five rep max. And people are like, what? That's, that's crazy. Their HRV is bad. What are you doing? Because most of the time it's going to be okay. And a lot of times it may even be better, right? So if you think back, okay, what is that low HRV score telling you? It's telling you that they are more sympathetically driven on that day. If you look at a gross motor task, you actually want to be more sympathetic driven during that task. That's actually a benefit. Um, And the other part too, is that I don't want them to have the mindset of that always being a negative, right? So one of the the emails I get from a lot of people is I don't use HRV because what if they have like this big competition the day before and the day of they get a bad HRV and it it just messes with their whole competition. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, in my opinion, you didn't do your job as a coach then because one, you should have seen that this is something that could potentially happen and have some form of mitigation for it. So a lot of people train sometimes on a red they do well. And so if it shows up that they're, you know, amber or red or more stressed the day of or the day before a competition, it's like, hey, you know, remember when we did this, you know, back like 10 weeks ago, what happened? Oh, yeah, I went to the gym and I got a PR. Cool, you'll be fine. Right? Because I'm referring them back to something that was a legitimate thing that actually happened to them. But the caveat is that I don't want to do that every day. Right? So if it's like a powerlifting event, CrossFit event, whatever, you could take the next week off. Nobody cares, right? You have an almost unlimited amount of time for recovery. The thing that matters is performance on that particular day. Now, if you go back to a training cycle, mm, okay, do I really want to drop the hammer on just one day, knowing that it may cost you five more days of training? Yeah, Maybe if I'm doing some simulation work, but most of the time, probably not, right? I may err and say, let's do some more recovery stuff, or let's cut the volume or let's drop in an aerobic day or switch days because I'm prioritizing the long-term accumulation of higher quality work. And I know that if I push too hard on one day, 
I'm not going to get the total amount of work that I want to get in over that uh, time period. Mm-hmm. So I think for HRV, it's, it's useful. But again, you have to go back to what is HRV, right? It's a status of the autonomic nervous system. It's telling you a percentage of parasympathetic rest and digest and percentage of uh, sympathetic systems. And that's all it is, right? So when you do that measurement, you're getting a snapshot in time of the status of their autonomic nervous system. And that's it. Like, it's still useful. I think it's very useful. But prediction of performance, it's it's not super good. Endurance mm-hmm. performance, maybe. You start getting into seven-day averages and performance prediction, maybe. Um, but I like looking at it as it's just the cost of everything that you're doing, mm-hmm. right? So we have the, the stimulus of what you're putting into the system and then the response of your system. And everyone's going to respond, like you're talking about with outliers, everyone's going to respond a little bit different. You know, what is a very stressful form of training for one person may not be as stressful for somebody else. So I had a pretty level natural bodybuilder I worked with uh, several years ago, and he just kept having these weird injuries and just kept getting, you know, beaten up by all of his programs. And so when I worked with him, we did some other uh, movement based stuff. And then we did a little HRV experiment. I said, okay, we've got a good baseline. So go to the gym on Monday and do kind of what you're doing before. Uh, main lift was very low uh, rep range. And we'll add a few more lifts and do that. And then we just take two days off, measure your heart rate variability. Okay, we're going to use a similar type exercise again. And now we're going to do more volume, you know, like an eight to 10 rep somewhere in there. Nothing crazy. And then we're going to watch your HRV after that. Well, it turns out like the low rep stuff, he was tanked for like 48 hours. You know, he's a pretty strong dude. He's, you know, pulling 415 on a trap bar for reps easy. You know, form looked good. There was nothing mechanically wrong with his form at all. It was great. But when he did rep work, like 24 hours, he was good to go again. Again, based on a a nervous system on HRV. Mm -hmm. So we changed his training to be like, okay, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, yeah, do like a six to eight rep range of a heavy compound lift and then higher rep work for more accessory kind of full body based stuff. And he was doing like, you know, 30,000 pounds of volume most days the week pretty easily. Or in the past, when he started doing low rep stuff, it would take him, you know, almost two days to recover. And if your goal is hypertrophy, right, prioritizing volume is probably going to be a better approach. Um, so again, you can use HRV to try to determine for that particular individual, for everything they're doing, the recovery, their nutrition, everything else, what is kind of the response of their system? And you can stress them out more and acutely get more performance. You know, just like I could, you know, redline my little Jetta and get to Cub Foods faster, mm-hmm. but I can't do that every day and expect that I'm going to, you know, put 200,000 miles on the car either. Mm-hmm. So kind of want to know what is that cost that you're going to pay. And then in terms of measurement systems, I tend to still use uh, a one-time measurement dedicated in the morning. I use the iFleet app. So instead of athlete, it's iFleet with an I. And just a heart rate strap. Most of the time, people are going to be seated. Uh, They'll sit down, put the heart rate strap on, sit for one to two minutes, run the measurement. takes about 55 seconds. They'll fill out some little context indicators, self-report, energy, sleep, mood, et cetera. Add some comments, and then they're done. So it takes about five minutes. Um, You can look at the HRV data from Aura. It is accurate, meaning so I've talked to Harpreet and they, 
you know, can get the exact waveform. They measure it, you know, 256 times a second. But the downside is that it's laying down and that it's uh, accumulated over the course of the night. So it's more of a, an average HRV, mm-hmm. um, which can be fine, but we just don't have as much comparative data in the literature because that's a newer method of collection. And then you have to watch out if someone has a very low resting heart rate. So if I'm looking at their aura data and they're hitting like, you know, 38, 39, 40, I've got an obstacle course racer that's where his is at night. His HRV on aura probably won't change very much, even if his stress level gets higher. Uh, Uh, Something called a, a parasympathetic saturation. So when you're lying down, your body has more parasympathetic tone than even seated or standing. Right. So if I'm seated, my heart has to work a little bit more against gravity. Everybody knows this, right? If you want to get to your lowest resting heart rate, you would do it lying down as relaxed as possible. Um, the downside is on Aura, then the HRV just may not change that much. So just by having someone do it seated or standing, you put a little bit of stress into the system. And then these background stressors are more likely to then show up. So for the obstacle course racer guy, we do his, we do his standing actually. Um, because even seated, we weren't seeing too many changes. Um, so again, it's not that the measurement is inaccurate. You just have to understand what is it looking at and what are some times where you may not see uh, big changes in it. Mm-hmm. So as far as I like how you talked about the the bodybuilder example, as far as the usefulness and practicality of the HRV, is there anything else where you talk about that? You said it was the coaching leverage formula, correct? Where a physiologic right. response times ability to change. What else could... HRV, you know, maybe like an example comes to mind or just a common occurrence where I see this and that's an indication that I might introduce this to a client as far as what you see when you're measuring HRV. Yeah. So the pro and con with HRV is that it's really good at picking up any changes to the autonomic nervous system. If it's done and collected with a legit app in a a decent method of collection. The downside is that it can respond to almost any stressor, mm-hmm. right? I've seen, you know, people where training stress was the number one thing. You know, I've seen stuff where one client in particular, a couple of years ago, I'm looking at his HRV and I'm like, okay, everything looks good. Like nothing seems out of whack. And it's just, it's just, you know, dropping. So I sent him a note and I'm like, Hey, like what's going on? Like, I can't figure out anything else. And he's like, oh, I've been having arguments with my wife. We may be getting a divorce, you know, so very high background psychological stress and his HRV was just tanking. Um, so on like the iFleet app, you can rate these little context indicators. Wow. So say energy was this, sleep was this, training was this. You can put in little comments. So most of the time, unless we're following someone really closely, they'll send me the data once a week at check-in and I'll look. And if I see it go down or up, the first thing I'm going to look at is what changed in their context indicators. Oh, I see. Oh, their nutrition was self-report was very poor this week. I'm going to pull up their, you know, chronometer and look, oh, okay. They were off their calories by like 1500 calories for the last four days. That's probably going to be a stressor if they're trying to keep up their, you know, general training now. So I'm probably going to have a conversation about, Hey, you know, what's going on with that? Or they self-report their sleep is very bad. I may cross-reference their, aura data and see what's going on with that or you know send them a note and see what's going on so without the context indicators there's no real way with hrv to know what's going on 
So I like having the context indicators there also, because that immediately tells me what area do I need to look at, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to send him a note and say, Hey, I saw your calories were off by 1500 calories the previous three days. You know, what's going on versus sending a note being like, Oh, you look stressed. What's up? Like, Mm -hmm. again, they may know, they may not know. It goes back to conscious versus uh, unconscious stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Having the context to put it all together and not just relying on just the anecdote, but but not just relying on just the data either. Uh, when you talk about the words para- parasympathetic and sympathetic, we obviously live in such a sympathetic world, especially when you talk about Americans, I would say specifically, it's always go, go, go. It's high pace. We want to push, push, push. That's kind of our mode of being. So do you find that you have to kind of ever coach clients to like, Hey, you need one thing to to kind of de-stress throughout the day, maybe before bedtime or in the middle of the day or surrounding your training. Is that something that you focus on? If someone is just too high leverage, because it's it's interesting to me that sometimes it's just such a matter of, of personality, uh, of circumstance of environment. So how do you look at that in terms of someone just being really high stress throughout the day? Yeah. A couple of things I'll look at will be uh, training performance, HRV, uh, even phone conversations, right? Their tone of voice, how fast do they speak? Uh, I had a client years ago, I was doing a screening call and I'm like, it sounds like you're pretty stressed. She's like, nope, not stressed. Me not stressed. Very, very little stress. I don't have much stress at all. I have very little stress. And I'm like, that just kind of confirms to me that you're very stressed, but you don't know that you're stressed. (laughs) So again, a lot of it is awareness would be number one right? Getting them to admit that, oh yeah, I am probably a little bit more stressed. If they don't, if you don't have any awareness, like the odds of them changing are like slim to none. Mm -hmm. Uh, So once they agree to it, I'm like, okay, so here's some options, right? The first question I'll ask them is what do you do to relax? Right. And you know, most of my clients are trainers and they just stare at you like, you know, deer in the headlights of a Peterbilt. Like uh, I I go to the gym and train. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, okay. I wouldn't say that's really relaxing. I agree. It's good. Um, but like, what do you do to relax? They're like, oh, I don't know, like sleep. I'm like, do you have any hobbies other than fitness? No. About fitness? <laughs> do you, yeah. Do you do any recreation? Do you play any sports? Do you do? No. And, and so it's sometimes a struggle for them to give themselves permission to do something else. Mm-hmm. Right. So an easy place that I'll start is like, hey, maybe you should learn a new sport. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, no, I don't want to learn a new sport. I'm going to suck at it. Exactly right? You're probably not going to be that good. And that's okay. It's not just to burn calories. It's, you know, there may be a social aspect, there may be just coordination, different movement patterns, right? You're kind of, you know, sagittal dominated by all your stuff in the gym, even though we're trying to program around some of that. Um, It's usually where I'll start. Um, Again, options could be just pick a time, go to a coffee shop and just read. Oh, can I check Facebook more? No, like get an old school book and like actually read something. What should I read? I don't care. Read fiction for all I care. It doesn't matter to me, right? Just do whatever is more relaxing for you. You know, if you can do some breath work, some meditation, prayer, whatever, great. Um, But I think the biggest thing is usually just giving themselves uh, permission to do it. And then if I had a choice, I would pick some type of breath work, I think is very beneficial and some type of recreation. You know, Mm -hmm. obviously I do a lot of kiteboarding. So my bias would be go learn to kiteboard. Like it's going to be hard. You're probably gonna get your ass handed to you, but once you get it kind of figured out, 
it's a lot of fun. You kind of have a built-in social structure because getting people to help and land your kite is kind of part of the thing. And Hey, you know, hanging out outside and a nice day on, on a beach or the water. Yeah. That's, that's always good. Even a bad day is a good day. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that kind of brings up something else I wanted to touch on. Like when, so when I think of, of my recreation, I, I love the summer here in Nebraska because I have friends that like to play a lot of golf and it's mentally yeah. stimulating you to get outside. Perfect. And, you know, and so I guess I'm curious what the, the benefits, and I know I've heard you talk a little bit about light exposure, but how important and what is it doing for us when we get outside and get out in the sun and, and, and get that natural, you know, breathe outside and what is that doing as far as helping us to just be more in tune with our body um the the circadian alignment aspect of it how important is that and do you do you focus on that with your clients too like get outside for 10 minutes a day stuff like that yeah i mean especially for clients usually very fitnessy oriented clients i literally have to actually program go for an am walk in the morning don't wear any glasses right because if i'm trying to hit a bunch of you know birds with one stone okay cool so do it in the morning fasted you don't have to do anything beforehand yeah maybe burn a little bit more fat yeah maybe not research is kind of split on that uh, but you don't have to do anything beforehand super easy to do you don't have to warm up you get more movement um you get sunlight into the bottom part of the eye so when photons come into the eye there's these receptors which are primarily located actually on the bottom part of the eye to receive light from overhead and that programs the SCN, this little, or, this little organ, so to speak, in your brain, part of your brain, and that controls your master circadian rhythm. Um, actually, all your cells in your body so far, we've looked at all have internal clocks, but the SCN is kind of the master regulator of them. And so when you have more sunlight exposure, that kind of resets that as, oh, here's your starting point for, for the day. That has to deal with uh, how you build up uh, the awake network versus sleep pressure. Um, so having sunlight exposure is very good. Doesn't mean you have to go out and stare at the sun or anything crazy. Just, you know, even at an angle is helpful. And so that's, why, the color that's why you include the point not to wear sunglasses too. Yeah. So sunglasses will block a lot of those photons from entering the eye. Um, and if I were to go back in time, like I think, a lot of why my circadian rhythm was so dysregulated for so many years was I wore sunglasses constantly. Um, so I'll ask people now, cause I had did this for a while, like probably started five years ago and some people just like, it made no difference. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And I asked them, I said, Hey, do you wear sunglasses in the morning? They're like, yeah. I'm like, Oh, so if you're getting up right around sunrise, you probably don't need sunglasses unless you're hyper light sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, again, the UV rays are not going to be that much intense. You probably don't have to worry too much about, you know, I'm very light skinned, so I don't worry too much about burning or anything like that. Um, so yeah, you want some of the UV uh, photons to hit the back part of the eye. Um, other parts too are outside, just things people forget about. Like if we're having this conversation over a screen, so a lot of people's day is their eyeballs being focused on the screen. So yeah. little muscles. The last around anything, of course. Yeah, surround the eye, just like your hip flexors get kind of tight because they're in that position all day. So I'll tell people, go outside and just look up and try to look far away. And if you want to get super crazy and woo-woo, like try to pick out the difference in trees. Mm. Uh, there's a weird thing called tree blindness where sometimes people can't figure out where one tree starts and one tree ends even when they're different types just because their brain is not 
used to processing those patterns. Again, you don't have to be a neurologist or, you know, arborist to figure out what's what. Uh, other things like uh, there's some old studies on uh, Japan called forest bathing, which when I first read that, I thought it was a bunch of hippies running into the mm -hmm. wilderness, hitting themselves with twigs, but it's just called go, go outside and be in nature. They've done some studies with HRV, even having people look at pictures of trees and then HRV gets better. That may have to do with the kind of fractal patterns of the trees possibly. And then as a side benefit, if you can do a sport where you have any type of hand eye body coordination, especially with some type of unknown element, I think that from a coordination standpoint is super beneficial. Well, and that could be playing golf, playing tennis, play volleyball, baseball. Again, obviously I like kiteboarding, but again, you're going to be outside. You're going to have light exposure. Your eyeballs are going to be forced to look at different things. You're going to be forced to coordinate things. Any, almost all of those sports have immediate feedback, right? And you know, if you hit the ball or you didn't, or you know how far the, your golf shot went, et cetera. Uh, there's usually a social, social component uh, with it. And again, you're, also dealing with something that's just a little bit unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll find even more data in the future that especially for longevity and brain development and reduction of, you know, neuro diseases that those things are, are going to be more important than I think we ever realized. Like the amount of space is allocated in our brain to, to movement is just crazy. It's probably the number one function of your, of your brain. Mm -hmm. Something I, I mean, it doesn't necessarily directly relate to, but something I really uh, liked recently that I heard was, you know, listening to a lot of podcasts on artificial intelligence is something I'm really curious about. Hmm. And they talked about, and I don't think people don't think about this, at least I didn't. They're like, one of the hardest things to program for AI for like a robot or something like that is it's hard to get them to just walk normally. And we forget yep. how many years of evolution it took for us to just, we can walk on uneven surfaces, we can keep our balance and just like how much of a uh, difficult thing that really was to hardwire in us over millions of years. And it's, it's such a unique thing that we have that we just don't think about how, how skilled we are in that respect, how much of a, um, a blessing, I guess that is. Yeah, I've heard the analogy that humans walking are kind of like the, some of the models are like an inverted pendulum, mm -hmm. right? So I tell people like if you took a broom and you tried to put it on the bottom of your hand and you're trying to move the bottom around and try to balance the broom. Right. Compared to other mammals, we're very top heavy, you know, big heads, big upper bodies, but we're bipedal. So we're trying to walk around on, you know, two legs. So we're again, not the, the fastest animal, but in terms of adaptability to go to different places, um, pretty high. Mm -hmm. And um, another, another reason I really like walking the most is because as much as I can try to throughout the day when I'm sitting at my desk to focus on, you know, my posture and trying to stand up so that my hip flexors don't get tight, trying to focus on standing up and back with my shoulders, walking forces you to do that. And so that's another reason I like it too, because I'm just, I'm, I'm not very good. I don't think most people are about remembering to pay attention to my posture, moving around, you know, getting loose throughout the day. And so it just kind of forces you to get your body sort of in alignment and out of that seated um, position hunched over position that we're kind of in all day too. And so it's another way that it just, you know, kills more than two birds with one stone. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, just movements that you haven't done a lot. Uh, so for clients, if they do a lot of desk work, things I'm going to program for priority wise are going to be, uh, upper arm extension, right? So getting arms behind you. So a lot of rowing, 
and then also getting your legs behind you. So a lot of hip extension, because those are the opposite patterns of being in a desk. And what's walking an, does help accomplish some of those too, which is great. What's an example of getting your legs behind you as far as like exercises that you program? A uh, big one would be if they can handle it, like a reverse lunge. Okay. And right? so stepping backwards, coming uh, back, uh, depends on how weird you get into biomechanics. You could mm -hmm. even argue that maybe a squat or even a trap bar deadlift, those types of things, hip extension-y things are also beneficial. Mm -hmm. Well, we're winding down here about 10 more minutes or so, but I think that one more point I wanted to get to here, you talked about forest bathing and how when you're just out in, in nature, when you're out in the sun, when you're out just feet on the grass, you just feel so much more relaxed and you feel so much less stressed. I can speak to, you know, how great I felt. I just got back from a hiking trip a couple oh, of nice. weeks ago. Yeah. And it's just like, you get back and you just feel like nothing bothers you as much. You just feel so much more grounded and well-rounded and, you know, the reason I started this podcast, the reason it's called beyond fit is because I like to dig into the things that, yes, I want to teach you the pragmatic things you can do to be fitter and healthier and eat better. But I also always want to communicate that it's your health is just such a non um, specific part of your life, I guess, maybe that's not the right wording. But like, it's it's everything it's all around, you know, do you have sports do you go out and play to be social, like you said, to practice different um, modes of being to practice different mental states. And so in addition to just having things that you do to get out, be recreational, move in different ways. Uh, another point that you've talked about on the podcast before is sometimes you'll talk about things like cold exposure. I know mm -hmm. is a good example where it's not even, I, I think I heard you say in the podcast, like for, for someone just starting out, just be in the shower, uh, a cold shower for 10 seconds. And you're like, is that going to do anything physiologically to change you? Probably not, but it's good to just get used to doing difficult things that you don't want to do and exercising uh, using your prefrontal cortex over the limbic part of your brain that's naturally just going to want to jump out. So would you speak to partly the importance of just kind of that anti-fragility and doing those difficult things, even if not for the physiological benefit, for the mental benefit of it? Yeah. So once someone is pretty good at exercise, basic recovery stuff, um, for quite a while, I'm like, well, what is the next level? Like, there's like a bazillion different biohacks and stuff you could do. Some are useful, some are complete waste. Um, but what, like, based on physiology, what is the framework you could at least try to hold things up and go, eh, this one theoretically makes kind of sense, right? And to me, if you look at something called homeostatic regulators, these are things that your body absolutely has to hold constant or otherwise you die. Mm -hmm. If we go up one level, I think all of our bodies are just wired for survival above all else. And the homeostatic regulators can also be trained, right? So an example of one would be temperature, right? Humans are homeotherms. We like 98.6. It's actually about 97.7. But we can, like you mentioned, go into cold water. We can go into a sauna. We can exercise. Exercise builds up a lot of heat. We could exercise in heat we have the ability to train both cold and hot. Uh, however, we don't want our body temp to really go too high or too low, but we have the capacity when we go into hot environments to start sweating more, the amount of electrolyte loss changes. Um, so we have the ability to be quite adaptable. Other ones would be like local pH changes. We can do some high intensity exercise or even breathing techniques. Uh, other ones would be fuel systems like glucose ketones. Last one would be oxygen and carbon dioxide regulation. So back to the temperature thing, 
I think if you're training each one of these systems and you match it up well with what you're doing for exercise, you can get both a physiologic benefit and a psychological benefit too. I agree with what you're saying that I think everything in the future targeting, whatever, not that I'm a conspiracy theorist person, but everyone's going to get pretty good at targeting our limbic system, right? Because humans on a limbic hardwired reptilian brain level, you're all pretty similar, right? Where I think it's going to be different or your way to get out of that loop as a human is to train your prefrontal cortex, the more newer professor part, the thinky part of your brain to override the limbic system temporarily. Right? So I have a freezer in my garage I've converted into cold water immersion. So I've had it now for eh, going on almost a year and a half. And every time before I get in, even now it's not that cold, it's 47 degrees. There's still that little bit of hesitation of like, know if i want to do this yeah <laughs> you know and i did it like straight because of the lockdown for like a year and a half probably five six seven times uh per week and even at the end of a year and a half i was still like uh like i had to envision myself doing the thing and feeling better afterwards and kind of the rewards for it to get myself to do it like i would have thought by that point it would have become a lot easier and it did from an adaptation standpoint and how long i could stay in and the water temperature but there's still always that little bit of hesitation of uh, okay this is going to suck mm-hmm. um but i think that's where you make the decision of yep it's going to suck but it's going to be for a little while i'm opting to do this thing because i know i'm going to be a better human because of it and i think just doing those things in an intelligent manner I think is going to make you much more resilient and anti-fragile. Mm-hmm. And I think that we we just get so caught up in our own stories about our limitations. And that is sure. really why I like stuff like that, because it helps me to, I, I try to take a, I'd say, you know, 70% of the days, I'll, I'll take a, a cold shower first thing in the morning and just make myself be in the water, in the cold water for a minute. And then I can turn it on to warm. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll make sure I wear my, my digital watch in there. Cause like, I know, I know I'll cheat if I just have to count. Oh, totally. I'll make sure. I watch the minute, but I think that when you do stuff like that, you'll find it easier to try to take on new experiences, to try to take on new business risks, to try to branch out, you know, your friend groups, or if you're looking for a relationship, it makes all those things easier because you build a stronger belief in yourself. And that's why I really like it. And it's kind of one of those cool things where if you can pair Again, like you said, something that might be physiological, physiologically beneficial, but we're not quite sure. Like the fasted walking in the morning, it might help you burn a little bit more fat. It might not, but it's like, why not? That's right. Uh, I t- it's not I, much downside. Mm-hmm. And that's we talked last time. I said that I do a, a 24-hour fast once every month, and people go, "Oh, you know, what's the reason for that? Is it some health thing?" And I'm like, eh, there is some evidence that it might help as far as like cell autophagy and longevity. I think that the, the research is kind of still out on that as far as I understand. But to me, it's just one of those things that I don't want to do it. It's hard. And every time I finish it, I feel better about myself. I feel more capable to take on new challenges in the future. And so I think when you can stack, like you said, the physiological things with the psychological things, that's where you really get a lot of bang for your buck. Yeah, and I agree. And I mean, obviously I'm biased because I have a whole you know, physiologic flexibility cert that goes into all those things. But part of it was also born out of trying to be practical, right? What is, the question I always ask myself is like, what has the most leverage, mm-hmm. right? So again, once you're good at basic exercise, your sleep's okay, nutrition's pretty good. 
I think there's a fair amount of benefits to just turning your water to cold for 10 seconds at the end of your shower, right? The reality is you're not really adapted to a lot of cold or hot. So the 10 seconds of cold, is it adapting you physiologically? Yeah, somewhat. Um, but I think, like you said, making those decisions is the greater thing. And the reality is you're starting at 10 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone can probably find 10 seconds to do it. So again, if you're not good at those things and you don't have very much adaptation to them, by definition, you don't need a lot, mm-hmm. right? So you could do you know, two rounds of a super ventilation breathing technique and probably I think get some pretty good benefit from it, especially if you've never done it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, or do a 24 hour fast, right? It's just one day and you actually probably end up saving time because you didn't stop to eat. Right, exactly. Right? So I think That's things great. like that where you can eliminate the biggest thing, which for most people is just time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that I think that'll do it for this one, Dr. Mike. I really appreciate you being on. And if you want to end with where people can find you, anything you're working on right now, and uh, just thank you so much again for for your time and sharing your information on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, best place is probably the main website is the flexdiet.com. It's actually flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. There'll be a way to get on the wait list uh, there, and that'll put you onto the newsletter list, which is where probably 90% of my content goes out to the newsletter, including some other cool bonuses and stuff. And you can just hit reply through there. Tell me you heard me on this podcast, and we'll send you a free gift. So that's flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Uh, my main website is just miketnelson.com. And then I've been doing more stuff on Instagram lately. You can find me there at Dr. Mike T. Nelson is d-r-m-i-k-e-t-n-e-l-s-o-n awesome and we'll link to all that and just thank you so much again mike for for your time yeah thank you so much i really appreciate it hey guys thank you so much for tuning into the podcast if you would please take a minute out of your day to review and rate the podcast as well as subscribe it would really help me out a lot And if you're on Instagram, go ahead and follow me on there at jakeparker.fit and screenshot and tag me when you're listening to the show. I'll be sure to share it. And thank you personally on there.